Welcome to DeFi by Design, where we talk all things blockchain and cryptocurrency while striving to educate, empower, and enrich. Welcome back to the DeFi by Design podcast brought to you by The Rollup, a media and education company that provides high quality, actionable insights and information on all things layer twos, rollups, DeFi, scaling solutions, new protocols, juicy alpha, and insightful research. We're excited to share with you the latest trends and development in the DeFi space so you can stay informed and ahead of the curve. Without further ado, we will jump right into this episode with a brief update on some of our current sponsors. Buffer Finance is a non-custodial, exotic options trading platform built to trade short-term price volatility and hedge risk of high leverage positions. They are a leader in the arbitrum charge taking over on layer twos and totally understand the potential of blockchain technology and how it's transforming the finance industry. They are proud to support DeFi by design. If you're looking for a platform to trade short-term options, look no further than Buffer Finance. With their innovative tech, easy to use platform, they're at the forefront of the options tech in Arbitrum. Visit their website, buffer.finance, and take a look at all their options. ZKX is a leader in the decentralized derivative DEX market on StarkNet. StarkNet is a cutting edge technology built to help scale Ethereum using ZK rollups. They understand the potential of scaling, blockchain tech, and how it's going to change the world of leverage trading. ZKX protocol is happy to be on testnet and will be on mainnet very shortly. Check out ZKX protocol on Twitter, as well as on Crew3 to get more information about what's going on on StarkNet. What's going on, guys? Welcome to episode 108 of the DeFi by Design podcast, our second rundown with Matt Cutler from Block Native. We're going to be talking about a lot of things that are happening in the Ethereum world today um, and some interesting educational concepts that I personally would like to learn more about. And we've got just the right guy. Uh, so what's up, Rob? How you doing? GM, GM, doing well. I just had some lunch, so I am full and, and ready to chat. I uh, I won't take any more time before we introduce Matt, uh, who needs no introduction because he gave quite an insightful one last time. I think uh, rattled off like seven or eight startups that were some ups and downs, but ultimately we're we're here to stay. So Matt, welcome back to the podcast, man. Uh, You bet. Uh, Thanks for having me back. Great to see you, Andy. Great to see you, Robbie, and excited to dive in. Awesome. Uh, Andy, do you want to kick it off? I think there's some really interesting uh, conversations that that we can we can get into, and uh, yeah, go ahead. First question. Yeah, I think just what what was interesting is that we uh, last time that we had this pod, we were DeFi slate, and now we've uh, jumped on the the scaling bandwagon. Um, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts as to if the if since the last pod we had maybe a year or two ago, year and a half, two years probably. Um, yeah, what, how do you think the, the ecosystem is scaling from a, from a TPS perspective? And, you know, is this kind of the modular and roll up world that you were expecting from, from that last pod? I'm just curious. Well, it, it, in web three, two years feels like a lifetime ago. So it's like, we live in a completely new reality. That much is clear. Um, I think that the, there was, you know, 
back then there were, you know, significant questions on what was scalability going to look like and how we're going to get there. I think the Ethereum Foundation provided a lot of clarity to have a, an L2-centric uh, uh, scalability plan. We've seen the rise of a couple of really major L2s, you know, largely with Optimism and Arbitrum, but also, you know, Matter Lab ZK Sync and now things like Base and, and many more. And, and I think that the thesis is playing out pretty cleanly. Um, you know, there's still a ton of questions. We're still very early in the cycle, but uh, net net, I don't think there's any ambiguity around how Ethereum is going to scale, what it's going to look like, what the trade-offs are going to be. And what I'm hearing out there is, you know, are, are there going to be a handful of rollups that matter? Are they going to be dozens or are there going to be thousands? And most of the smartest people I know are, are very much in the thousands or tens of thousands of camp. And so uh, it starts to get super interesting in terms of the diversity that's possible, the um, just the number of players and also the complexities that emerge from it. Um, we always say, like, do you pay attention to where the food that you eat comes from? You should because it's sort of what you're made of. And then similarly, do you pay attention to how the transactions you're doing actually get on chain and get confirmed? Because you should, because ultimately um, settlement really matters in, in these in these systems, and they particularly matters as it relates to L2s. And so uh, the L2 settlement is complex because you have to settle first on the L2 and then on the underlying L1. And there's a ton of interesting questions surrounding that. And then final point is Ethereum itself is basically making significant upgrades to facilitate this with the next major hard fork coming up probably end of the year, beginning of next year called Deneb with uh, EIP 4844, proto-dank sharding, which is really targeted at making life easier and cheaper for rollups. So um, they're putting their money where their mouth is and, and we're underway, but there's still a lot of history to be written, as I like to say. Yeah, speaking of EIPs, I think the last time we spoke, it was around actually the merge. I think it might've just been just after the merge perhaps. But I know that you guys were super, super excited about block building uh, in, in this new proof of stake model. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar, block building is like basically kind of what it sounds like the, the process of building and creating blocks that uh, are, uh, are finalized and settled on Ethereum. Uh, obviously with proof of stake now, that's what we have. We have validators, building blocks um, in, in the least technical way possible, building blocks and posting transactions. Um, and so I, I know that's what you guys were super focused on and you guys were making some, some good dough on that, but what's going on now? Where's the, where's the focus and kind of what have you guys been uh, leaning into over, over the last like, year or so? Sure, so actually quite a bit of change here for us recently. So uh, just over a year ago, Ethereum completed the merge. It was on September 15th, 2022. Um, this was the transition from proof of work to proof of stake, uh, brand new consensus mechanism, but or brand new to Ethereum, I should say, proven elsewhere. Um, but along with the merge came a number of fairly significant upgrades to the network that that did not get quite as much attention because they're sort of less fundamental and a little bit or a little bit harder to understand. One of those upgrades was known as PBS or proposer builder separation. What this did was break apart the roles of proposing a new block to the network from building the block. So building the block is the, the act of basically deciding which transactions are gonna get included and in what order. By the way, as part of that, you also can decide which transactions get excluded. 
And PBS basically introduced the opportunity to outsource block building to a, a, a network of independent third-party providers, um, with the reason being building blocks that are valuable, which is what validators want to do because they get rewards based on the more value that's in the block, it's actually pretty hard. It's, it's hard to build blocks. You need a lot of network, you need a lot of compute, you need a lot of storage, but really you need a lot of relationships. Um, you need relationships with actors known as searchers who basically uh, are the trader-like entities that extract MEV. MEV is known as maximal extractable value, and it's the value that you can um, gain by, by manipulating and, and altering ordering. And so uh, the, the thesis was that block building is going to be a specialized skill that um, would be problematic for independent stakers. Say, you know, one of you guys with a staking rig in your in your house, you know, machine underneath your desk that's sort of doing all of this. It's going to be hard for you to compete for value for block value versus large staking pool operators like Lido or Rocket Pool or others that have a, a large amount of economic resource that they could devote to this problem. So the idea was look, if we create an outsourced network, then everybody has access to valuable blocks. And then larger entities don't have to build this capability themselves. And that's exactly what happened. Today on Ethereum, about 95% of all blocks are outsourced. And the reason why they're outsourced is because they're about five times as valuable as a vanilla block or internally sourced block. So there's great economic incentives for, to do so. At the merge, we were... Given what we had done historically, we work very closely with sort of real-time mempool data, and we have global infrastructure for that. And we evolved into being a block builder. So at the merge, we uh, started building blocks on behalf of the network, and we started um, relaying blocks or intermediaries between the validators and the builders. And we were really excited about that because... Um, there was a hypothesis that being a block builder would be this really interesting opportunity economically. Well, fast forward a year, and just last week, we announced that we're actually suspending our builder and our relay. And the reason for that is those economics didn't really materialize in the way that we and I think many others sort of anticipated. Um, namely that the, there's not a lot of value in being a block builder because there's so much more value in being a searcher trader. And so the profits in block building go to what are known as vertically integrated searcher builders. So we're a credibly neutral provider. We're not a trading entity for a whole bunch of reasons. We don't have a big stack of capital that we use to make arbitrage bets on. And But there are bunch of actors out there who are. And what they were doing because they want to make sure that their trades land is they just became builders themselves. And so it turned out that the market for builders evolved in a different way than we anticipated in a way that's much more verticalized and therefore more centralized than I think um, uh, po folks probably wanted. Um, and today there is a handful of builders that really matter. Um, and in, depending on external circumstances, there might be only one builder that matters, which is not great for the health of the network. If that builder doesn't like you, they can decide to not include your transactions or that builder has a competitive strategy to, to you. So they have their trades versus servicing your trades that they, they could censor the network or things like that. It's not ideal. Um, but that's sort of where we are. Uh, we as Block Native are a you know a venture backed startup. We're trying to build a real business out of it. And after a year, we've learned a ton. Um, but we've decided that you know it's just not sustainable for us long term um, to either operate a relay, which by the way have no economics associated with it, 
or to be a builder. Instead, what we're doing is we're focusing yet again. And what we find in the current system is end user transactions are effectively second class citizens, um, largely because these large trading entities are always competing for the the best settlement, the, the most valuable position in block. And we don't think that's great for the long-term health of the network. And, and we have a lot of ideas and a lot of capabilities that can actually help regular users via wallets um, compete for optimal settlement. And so we're choosing to focus on the, the areas that we really think are, are most interesting and most relevant, which are really uh, helping users have observability into what's going on, helping users protect their transactions from adverse settlement and um, helping them get get optimal settlement wherever possible. So, you know, we're continuing to work really hard in the space. We're continuing to focus on all the interesting challenges of MEV. We're just applying our efforts in sort of a narrower area and we're excited to, to do so in, in conjunction with our wallet partners. So a lot of change out there. Um, Web3 moves quickly and we have to move with it. So that's that's the a, a long answer to a short question, but that's where we are. Yeah, so it's mostly economical. As far as the change goes, you'd say? Yeah, there were many factors that went into us deciding to make a change here. Clearly, like the, the dominant one was effectively our investors are financing the operations of the, the network, which, which isn't great, right? Like, why are we spending investor dollars to make Ethereum run more smoothly um, when we're actually providing you know value to all the various actors and to the network and network operations? We sort of felt like it, it's a reasonable expectation that we'd be economically incented to do so. Um, that's not the case right now. And so we basically said we have to find opportunities where there are uh, positive economics. But there are other reasons as well. Um, you know, we're a US-based entity, which makes us subject to um, what's known as uh, OFAC SDN. So the US Department of Treasury has a thing called the Office of Foreign Assets Control, and they have uh, this thing called the Specially Designated Nationals List, which basically, if you're a US person, it doesn't even matter where you're incorporated, if, but if you're a US citizen, you can't touch that stuff. The, 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 the rules are pretty strict. It's $30 million per infraction and up to 30 years in jail. And so, you know, that's something you really have to be careful of as a U.S. entity. And unfortunately, just before the merge, um, the Tornado Cash Smart contracts were listed as OFAC SDN, which basically meant for us, we couldn't really build blocks that included those addresses because we'd be in violation of some pretty serious regulations in the U.S. Well, there are members of the Ethereum ecosystem who viewed that as as really problematic because that's censorship. You're basically deciding who can get on chain and who can't. And so we wound up inadvertently sort of between a rock and a hard place, um, where on one hand, we have US regulations we have to comply with. On the other hand, we're trying to be ecosystem aligned. And we're trying to square that circle. And, and even after some pretty extensive conversations with EF core devs, really found ourselves in a position we don't like to be in, where, where we really couldn't find a path forward that satisfied all the constraints. And we really do try to be ecosystem aligned. So it turns out to be cleaner for us to, to not do these things. I mean, we were like 10% of the network uh, in, in many circumstances. And it doesn't feel great to, to say, you know, in order to live our values, we're going to stop doing this for the network and we're going to contribute to centralization. But that was sort of the position we were in. As we look ahead, we care about observability. We care about things like everyone being able to see what's really going on. We're now a more credibly neutral player in that regard um, because we're not building blocks and you know we don't have there's not any question as to 
Do we provide different degrees of observability or transparency for our blocks or our transactions versus others? So that's good. And then finally, you know, we really do care about end user and end user settlement. I mean, we, we've been building an Ethereum ecosystem for five years with the idea that we're building the foundation of the next economy. And that next economy is going to be fundamentally better and uh, more equitable than the, than the existing economy. But when we have a, a network which fundamentally biases towards traders and for, for trader settlement at the expense of regular end users, it doesn't feel that equitable. It feels sort of like the existing system we have. And maybe that's inevitable. Maybe there's no way to avoid that. But we feel like we can do some things uh, that are quite clever to actually help end users and sit on that side of the table. And so that feels a bit more values aligned to us. So, you know, there are many reasons that went into us making this change. The biggest one is we have to find economically viable things to do, but that's not the only one by any means. Bear market vibes. Rob, what you got? Well, when I first got into the space, it was like you pay the highest gas, you get the you get the best execution. But there is so many layers to it that it's no longer the case. And maybe it never was the case. Um, while, while we enumerate like elements of the system, I'm, I'm curious to like for my own edification of of like understanding some of some of these components in the Ethereum machine. Um, we hear a lot about sequencers now, and back then it was a lot about about block builders. So, has has the model changed much, or is this just kind of like a new term for the same old thing? Um, that's a big question. So, so I think thinking and understanding here has evolved a, a, a huge amount. So, it's sort of hard to dive into this without diving into MEV first. So. MEV, I mentioned before, maximal extractable value was minor extractable value with, with the basic idea being financial systems are fundamentally ordered systems, meaning the sequence of transactions matter. And it turns out whoever controls the final ordering can extract value from the system. And, it, and today, MEV, the market is measured in billions of dollars per year and it continues to grow. So the idea is whoever, whichever entity sits last in the ordering can extract billions of dollars by altering or selling the rights to specific ordering. And, and it's, it's really pretty simple when you get down to it. Imagine there's an Oracle update. So Chainlink updates their Oracle and the Oracle shows that the price of ETH has dropped a whole bunch. As a result of the price of ETH dropping a whole bunch, there's a whole bunch of collateralized debt positions in Maker and Aave and elsewhere that suddenly are under collateralized and available for liquidation. And whoever goes in and basically handles that liquidation is going to make a bunch of money, right? The issue is there's probably only one person who's going to do it. And so how do you become the one person to win uh, all those liquidations. And let's use a hypothetical example where there's $100,000 of liquidations available, but there's certainly examples where there's millions or tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. Well, in the old way of doing things, you might do things like spam the network with a whole bunch of transactions, trying to get your transaction immediately behind the Oracle update, right? Because what you basically want to do is the Oracle update makes the, uh, the, collateralized debt positions 
available for liquidation. And then immediately behind that, right, you, uh, you're the entity that wins it, right? But just imagine all of these trading bots competing fiercely for a $100,000 opportunity. How much do you spend to capture $100,000? You spend a lot, right? And in the old way of doing things, everybody suffered. These were known as PGAs or priority gas auctions. And this is those circumstances for those of us who are around there where you had these crazy spikes in gas fees where all of a sudden it would cost thousands of dollars to get a transaction on chain. And it might be because just a handful of bots were going at war, at war with each other in the public mempool, going after these opportunities and everybody else suffered. But at the same time, well-resourced actors were sort of like, hey, this sucks. You know, what if I just bribed the miner? What if I just paid the miner 50 grand and I said, hey, I'll pay you 50 grand if you put my transaction right here. And there was evidence of that kind of thing happening, that sophisticated mining operations were cutting backroom deals so that large trading operations could get preferential ordering. Not great. Along comes this entity called Flashbots. Uh, they build a system to basically move all of this off chain, but basically make it uh, open and permissionless. So now anyone could participate in uh, this activity of bidding for um, for preferred placement. And and this how you do this is you do what are you, you submit what are called bundles. And so what you basically do is you grab that Oracle update out of the mempool, public mempool, you put your transaction behind it, you submit it with a bid, and you say, if you put these two transactions in exactly this order on chain, here's what I'll pay for it. So it's a hundred thousand dollars opportunity. I'm a trader, I say, I'll pay 10 bucks to make a hundred grand. But Andy's a trader too. He says, well, I'll pay 50 bucks to make a hundred grand. Robbie's a, a, a trader. He'll pay a hundred bucks to make a hundred grand. And, and it goes around, as you might imagine, and it bids up pretty quickly to almost a hundred thousand dollars to make a hundred thousand dollars. And all of these systems are happening at every block uh, in real time, all the time. This used to be called Mebgeth in the proof of work days under uh, PBS, sorry, under, under proof of stake of PBS today. This is known as MEB Boost. And all these various actors sort of participate to try to uh, win these ordering opportunities and to secure NFT drops, to uh, uh, capture uh, sex-dex arbitrage or arb between centralized and decentralized exchanges, to front run and sandwich and other folks. Now, in the world of Ethereum L1, um, the ordering is determined by the system called PBS. Well, with the L2, they're generally sequencers, right? And so sequencers take transactions. There are various sort of sequencer architectures, and I'm no expert about this stuff, but they basically get um, uh, a transaction submitted to them, and they order them in some sort of first received basis or some sort of gas price basis. But again, now you have the same problem where you're going to have some sort of opportunity. You're going to have some ordering preference. You're going to have actors who want to take advantage of that because they can make a gain. Well, what do they do? Well, if the fees are very low, they just spam the network. And we've seen you know, ample evidence of that, of transaction spam hitting these L2s as you know, bots try to compete for opportunities. You also have things like co-location, which is there is, uh, uh, there is a, a time element to all of this, meaning how soon can I detect that this there's an opportunity and how quick can I respond? And it turns out that things like the speed of light begins to matter because based on where the sequencer is, based on where your trading bot is, based on the number of network hops and the distance, you might spend a couple hundred milliseconds trying to figure out what's going on and getting your bids in while someone else says, oh, I have a 
a deal with the sequencer operator. I happen to know that they're located in Edinburgh. I happen to know which data center they're in. So I put my trading operation inside the same data center. In fact, I bribe one of the people at the data center to put my trading operation on the same network segment, maybe even on the same rack, right? Because that way I'm closer to the sequencer and I can pick up this information faster than others can, right? And then again, this is centralizing, right? Because now you have some deep-pocketed actor who can build the specialist relationship, who can capture these opportunities, they make more money, and then they can do more of this stuff, right? You might have other groups that say, oh, we don't allow any of that stuff, but there's hundreds of millions of dollars of opportunity of MEV accumulating, and maybe they take advantage of it, or maybe it pushes on to the next block in that, um, uh, that roll-up. And so the reality is, is you can't sort of scrub this stuff away. There's no like, wave your magic wand and it disappears. Um, and there are very real implications to whichever architectures are picked, whichever policies are picked, because that determines sort of what the most um, economically attractive set of actions are. And the general thing you want to do is you just want to make it open so anyone can participate. You don't want to privilege the deepest pocketed or the best connected or the friend of the CEO, right? Um, because, again, that's not great for uh, the sense of equity in these networks. So again, a long answer to a short question, but these are complicated issues, that's for sure. Yeah, it is. And I mean, the incentive model for the sequencers is a little bit wonky right now because, you know, for example, Base is doing like $10 million a month just off friend tech pretty much. And why would they want to give, why would they want to share that? Right. And so it's like, why would they? So I think there's, yeah, that's been a, a pressing issue in the roll-up space, but I've also seen other people uh, discuss um, other more prominent uh, issues to further de decentralize rollups and sequencers. Um, so I'm curious if, if you have some other prominent and more pressing areas of decentralization for rollups. And then I'm also just curious, generally, maybe you can tie these in together because it might be the same kind of issue with the economic misalignment is, do you think that the rollup, the business model behind rollups is, is a plus, A minus, B plus, C. What do you think? Um, again, I may not be the best person to, follow, to categorize, so to comment on all this, but just in general, sequencer centralization is viewed as sort of a structural weakness for the roll up space. You have one sequencer, it's controlled by one entity. It just creates all the conditions for um, games to be played for manipulation. Um, and so there's been a lot of work into the notion of decentralized sequencers. So you have multiple operators and multiple geographies, but it's a tricky problem, um, largely because these L2s uh, offer very short block times. I think Arbitrum is 250 milliseconds. And so it's, it's not an easy problem to decentralize that in a meaningful fashion across um, operators in geography and, and be able to do interesting things in under 250 milliseconds, merely because network handshakes take that long sometimes. Um, there is a lot of work in this area, and most of the major um, uh, roll-up operators have roadmaps towards decentralization, and there are specialist providers out there like uh, Espresso and others who are working on this. So I would say this remains, this is an area of very active research and development, and I think there's been a lot of progress in that. So you know, over the course of the next year, I think one of the things that will be really interesting will be exactly how far do we get on the decentralized sequencer problem and you know how far into production they are um, I would say that so far you know the the economic opportunities that seem to be presented by the leading um, uh, uh, l2s like optimism and Ardrum are pretty interesting 
it's always tough to give something an A plus, but it's certainly in the in the B plus to to A range for for that. Um, in general, what we see in these spaces is where there is liquidity, there is economic opportunity, and so those uh, those roll ups that are able to capture significant economic flows like base um, have real economic opportunity. And so at the end of the day, it's it's the uh, liquidity is kind of a good gauge of engagement, right? It's it's the old metric. Like it's not so much do you build the tech, it's do people use the tech. And how do you know if someone's using your L2? Well, there's a whole lot of flow. There's a whole lot of liquidity. There's a whole lot of action on it. There are people who are building on it. Um, I think Optimism has done a pretty great job with their OP stack and basically encouraging other builders to uh, pick up their infrastructure and, and set up their own L2s. There's a lot of traction there. Um, and so in general, I think that the L2 space is, is pretty vibrant. Um, and there's a handful of leaders. I've mentioned a lot of them. And there's a a, a large number of challengers who are coming up to do interesting things. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is will we see like a an app uh, uh, an app chain thesis here where each game will have will be its own rollup. It'll be an island unto itself. It'll be a very uh, a simple rollup that's supporting a single application that will then need to you know the, the interesting question is how composable will it be with with other stuff that's out there. You have uh, cross rollup or cross chain um, complexities that associate with that, but maybe provide a really simple, really fast, really cheap way to have on-chain transactions for your favorite multiplayer game, right? Um, and so I think that all of these uh, ideas are being tested right now. And it's it's a great ecosystem play. And by ecosystem, it's like, let the strongest survive, right? All the ideas are going to get tried. Some of the ones that succeed might be surprising. Uh, there'll be others like the the five-legged mammal that, that don't succeed because it turns out that the ecosystem can't support them. And that's fine. You end up with four-legged mammals, right? Um, and so, you know, we're in sort of this um, Cambrian period of experimentation. Uh, it's interesting that it's happening during a bear market because it shakes out a lot of the noise. Um, and so the best ideas rise to the top. And, and I, I said this before, but I'll say it again. It, it seems too early to call winners and losers yet. Um, and it does seem to be that there's some a lot of good ideas that are, are being pursued and a lot of positive progress being made. Taking a quick commercial break here to tell you guys about our lovely sponsors. Right before we get back to this fascinating discussion, we have a message from our current sponsors. Here we go. I want to take a moment to introduce you to our sponsor, Premia Finance. Premia is a native options protocol that offers market-driven pricing and capital-efficient returns for traders and liquidity providers. With Premia, you can trade options on a variety of different crypto assets. Well, what sets Premium apart is its unique pricing mechanism, which is based on the market's expectation of future volatility. This means that options prices are always in line with market conditions, which provides traders with the most fair and transparent pricing. Recently, Premium has just launched their Options Academy, where you can learn for free how to become a proficient options trader. Uh, feel free to check it out at premium.finance, um, hedge your risks or amplify your positions um, to earn more capital efficient returns on premium finance. Thank you. And another exciting sponsor to introduce you is Plana Finance. I've recently uh, on, been onboarded as an advisor for Plana Finance, which is one of the first self-custodial wallets to support account abstraction. With Plan of Finance, you can revolutionize your crypto experience and take control of your assets like never before. Say goodbye to the hassle of managing multiple wallets. Hello to a seamless, user-friendly experience. 
Planet Finance allows you to easily manage your assets, swap tokens, and earn rewards all in one place on your mobile phone. They have an app in the Apple App Store as well as in the Google Play Store. Uh, with Planet Finance's self-custodial wallet, you hold the keys to your assets, ensuring the highest level of security and privacy. With tons of cool features like gasless trading, um, interesting yield competitions, and cool NFTs, there's an amazing amount of effort going into building this app that already has tens of thousands of users. So what are you waiting for? Download Planet Finance today and experience the future of crypto wallets. I like the Cambrian uh, analogy. Uh, and I just looked it up because I had heard that before, but I, it, I wasn't really sure what it meant. And it's the explosion of diversity at the beginning of the, uh, what is this? The Metazoic era? No, the pa Paleozoic era of dinosaurs saw an explosion of biodiversity. And maybe that's when five-legged mammals were, were able to exist in the ecosystem. So yeah. I take it like, you know, we, we've already seen um, a Cambrian explosion with the L1s back in 2017. And the sentiment back then seemed to be, these are Ethereum killers. There's going to be one that survives. We kind of realized that's that's not really been the case, but a lot of them, a lot of them have fallen off. So now we're kind of seeing this again, this like explosion of innovation that's happening in the L2 space and the roll-up space. And the thesis seems to have changed. It seems that now there is enough room for all of these to survive. Whereas in the past, maybe we weren't so sure. Um, so I, I think my, my question here is what, what are the missing elements in the roll-up in the L2 space now to ensure the survival of the most successful roll-ups in L2s? Um, so it's interesting. L1s basically have to, to bootstrap their own economic security, right? And so you have Bitcoin, which has this huge head start because it was the first, right? You have all these mining machines which are deployed against it. And so you have this pretty massive basis of economic security on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, Ethereum is an alternate proof of work system. You know, you got to realize that, that Ethereum came out of the Bitcoin community. Um, you know, the Bitcoin community is a fundamental bet on sound economics. And there is a bunch of people in that community who wanted to push the technological barriers, wanted to be really um, a pro innovation. And when they realized that the, the core of Bitcoin wasn't really interested in pushing the technological boundaries, they split off and, and formed Ethereum. Um, and so Ethereum has this interesting head start in terms of the intellectual capital. You have a lot of um, really smart uh, um uh, computer scientists, cryptographers, um, economic incentive, game theoretic folks, and, and, and others who have been you know, gravitating towards the Ethereum ecosystem. And now you have this massive research community surrounding it. Ethereum set up a bunch of computers, got a bunch of uh, folks to, to get behind it, and you had some economic security there. There was this time where there were you know, 12 great engineers who had a better consensus algorithm, who had a different approach, and they stood up other L1s and they said, hey, we're going to compete with that. And there are a number of L1s that are relevant, that have, that have real flow on them. But when Ethereum switched to the merge and uh, to proof of stake, uh, the total economic security available on Ethereum went up dramatically. I think today the number is, I don't know, 35, 40 billion dollars of total economic security. And, and that gives it a lot of heft. It's pretty hard to move that much economic security someplace else. It's also quite hard to stand that up someplace else. Now, 
L2s are something else entirely because L2s inherit their security from the base L1. This is what makes Ethereum so attractive as a, as a home for L2s because you can inherit $40 billion, again, whatever the number is right now, of economic security underneath it. So uh, you don't have that same cold start problem. You have, a, you have a different set of problems. And so the L2 uh, ecosystem evolution, I believe, will be quite a bit different than the L1 ecosystem evolution because you have Ethereum as this very roll-up friendly um, environment with a ton of economic security as part of it. Now, Basically, what needs to happen with these L2s is they need to offer capabilities that are um, that you can't get on the L1 because you, there are some trade-offs associated with it, like ultimately you settle down to the L1. So generally, they offer things like faster block times and they offer cheaper transactions, right? And so uh, the that, that turns out to be pretty attractive depending on the sort of application you're trying to deploy. And then what these L2s do is they try to uh, attract um, you know developers to to build on their ecosystem, and it's interesting to look at sort of the top protocols, the top applications, and see you know they're available on Ethereum L1, but where what L2s are they available on? Um, because that's where the users are, that's where the liquidity is, um, and then you start to see well what new applications are being stood up specific to various L2s. So what are applications that you can only find on Optimism? What are applications you can only find on Base, right? Base is a pretty interesting example in FriendTech. You know, FriendTech was sort of used as a um, case study, as, a, as an example of the sorts of things you could do on the Base blockchain. And FriendTech is exclusive to Base right now. I'm on FriendTech. Hey, buy me. I'm Adam Cutler. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, the the most of these L2s are EVM compatible. They're often address compatible, so you don't even need to change anything. Um, you just need to deploy on those um, L2s, which makes it pretty easy to add support. But you know, it's not so much about. It's not just getting up on the L2. It's about supporting the L2 moving forward. And maybe there's certain assumptions that you make about Ethereum L1 that are different over there, or you know that things start to work differently, and now it becomes more more costly as a development team to support your application in these multiple locations. It also gets more confusing for your users because was I using the application on Arbitrum or was I using the application on Ethereum or what are they using it on Optimism or Base, right? If I want to move my assets between them, am I able to do so? How does that happen? What are the risks? If I'm part of a, a challenge, like a fraud proof sort of thing, what's What's that mean? What are the assumptions? And so you do get uh, additional complexity that gets put on both the teams and on the end users um, as they go down these various paths. It's, it's not a panacea. It's not something for nothing. It's always a trade-off. Um, and so I, I, you asked the question around what's missing. And I think that, you know, in general, the infrastructure's emerging the the development the developing the developer tooling is emerging um and you know the uh the 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 um uh best practices are emerging as well and so i think everybody's in this period of experimentation trying to figure it out um i think we'll start to see examples that really work that people can look at and learn from and say oh they did it this way i can do it the same way again or they use this tooling and, and they can do it the same way um it's very relevant to us at block native because we are very actively trying to build sort of next generation observability infrastructure for ethereum l1 and we are right now um 
uh, actively uh, submitting grants to other foundations to say, hey, we have this grant from the Ethereum Foundation to build these capabilities into Ethereum L1. We think it would be in your ecosystem's best interest if the same capabilities were available for your L2. Um, not, by the way, unlike sort of what Etherscan does, right? And so, um, you know, basically part of the tooling infrastructure, the uh, the picks and shovels, if you will. So all of that's still, um, still coming out is probably the best way to put it. But there's a lot of teams like ours who are pursuing these opportunities. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's uh, it's very interesting takes. I think um, I think we are almost ready for uh, like onboarding a ton of users. Like I think the whole PWA friend tech was mind blowing. I I think um, the L twos are there, um, but yeah, it's still just being built. It's exciting. Definitely far more ready than 2020, 2021. So exciting in that sense. Shifting gears to another. Um, hot narrative pressing topic exciting one that a lot of our fan base and community is excited about is is the whole uh, liquid staking narrative and what's going on there um the the specifically i'd like to talk about uh restaking um so if you want to maybe provide us with a, your general mental model of the landscape of liquid staking currently if it's played out as it as you expected uh things uh, things that you've noticed trends uh, things you're excited about uh, but generally, we would like to, that to take us into restaking and some of the controversies around restaking. So uh, two related topics. So liquid staking is you stake with a large staking pool like Lido, which is the largest, and you receive back a token that you can then do stuff with and you can buy, sell, trade, you can um, put it into DeFi applications and uh, and. Uh, this has created a lot of, it brought a lot of people into the staking economy because it, it it's a lot more fluid, it's liquid than just, I lock my ETH up and it sits there and it accrues uh, an APY. And then if I want to withdraw it, I got to submit a request and it gets put into the withdrawal queue and taken out. It, it becomes a lot more uh, dynamic. Um, what's happening with, with liquid staking in general is, you can now move your stake much, or moving forward, to be able to move your stake much more fluidly between providers. And so, uh, you know, think about it like a bond market, where you have various um, uh, uh, yields, and you get locked up into a bond. And so you say, okay, my bond is at you know three percent, and then a few weeks later, there's a bond that comes out that it's three point five percent, and you're like, ah. You know, now I got to sit around and wait for my bond to mature so I can move it to the 3.5. The, the liquid staking stuff allows you to move this between providers much more rapidly as you pursue maximum yield. Um, this is great if you're an ETH holder because it allows you to uh, get maximum benefit from that. But it's problematic from the position of the network because it creates centralization. If you have certain providers that are doing things others aren't doing or have access to trading entities that other don't have, or there's some sort of other mechanism that's not explicit, they can offer additional yield, that all the stake will just flow to them. And they'll get more economic resources so they can do more of that sort of stuff. So there are concerns that you're going to have sort of fundamental centralization at the validator layer, which will create you know conditions where you could have people could be maliciously attacking the network. And, you know, Lido is probably the, the best known because they're pretty close to the 33% threshold. That community has said very clearly they're not going to exceed it. But again, it's like 
it's there. There's nothing structural to prevent that from happening. It's the the um, uh, ecosystem alignment of that community. Um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff there. But I, I think in many ways, liquid staking is inevitable and is good for users. You don't want to put, put artificial constraints on um, folks' ability to move value around. The whole idea behind these Web3 systems is that they're programmable value. Um, and therefore, you know, uh, the system should encourage innovation, should encourage experimentation. But, you know, the question is, how do we create economic incentives that don't pin us towards some negative outcome. Now, restaking is a derivative of this, meaning imagine once I have staked my ETH, I can then stake on top of that again. I can secure additional um, applications, additional protocols using the ETH I've already staked. Well, it's basically like creating a preference stack. So if you are a startup, you have what's known as a preference stack. You have a series of investors that have put money in at various stages. And in the event of a of a of an asset of a sale, right? You get you get acquired or something like that. There's an order in which your investors get paid out depending on the timing of their money. And this is all legally uh, uh, constructed when you do your investment. So it's not like everyone gets paid out all at once. It's that there's a, a stack of preference, right? The same is true with restaking, where you can now layer things on top of your staked. ETH and your other staked assets, and you can get more yield as a result of it, but you put new constraints and you um, have new rules and you expose yourself to new risk, right? So at the end of the day, one of the fundamental rules of investing is anytime you're making yield, it's because you're assuming risk somewhere, that there's no such thing as risk-free yield. Um, there is low-risk yield. Uh, the U.S. government uh, bonds are a good example of low-risk yield, but they're still, you're, you're basically, the risk is you're assuming the U.S. government is going to pay off its debts, which, as we've seen with recent events, that's not always the best assumption to make. As you uh, do these restaking applications, you now create all sorts of complexities and all sorts of, of um leverage uh, uh, among on top of the base underlying asset of Ethereum. And while this is perceived as good and, and healthy insofar as it enables experimentation and greater economic security, and now you can have folks who can build what look and feel sort of like alt L1s, but aren't actually an L1, they're restaking applications, right? So it allows the um, the, the economics of Ethereum to be much more fluid. It also gets really unclear what the risks are. And does that introduce things like consensus instability? And are there brand new attack vectors that would result in people losing? So you get a few more percentage points of yield, but you potentially risk you know, a very significant amount of, of staked ether underneath it. And does that then create um, you know, lack of confidence in the system? And so there's a pretty healthy debate right now around is restaking good or bad? I think most folks in the ecosystem would agree that restaking is inevitable. It's happening. The um, the number one sort of leader of all of this is an entity known as Eigenlayer, who's been quite transparent and quite explicit about you know their work here and their smart contracts. Um, uh, and I think we're, we're still at the very beginning of all of that. Eigenlayer, the protocol is live, though it's sort of constrained right now. But basically, every time they've They've tried to open it up, it immediately sells out. So there's clearly demand for these services. Um, why? Because people want to, to earn more yield, which is completely understandable. Um, and I think a lot of the researchers are trying to figure out, you know, what are the risks and, and how do they interact with each other and how do we manage that? So um, 
like I said before, I think that the history of restaking is, is yet to be written. Um, a lot of opportunity, a lot of potential, but also a lot of unknowns surrounding it. Vitalik has written a bit about this uh, with respect to, um, I think leverage is a great word, leveraging the consensus layer. Um, yep. and, and that, for my limited trading experience, leverage implies liquidation. Uh, so if we if we leverage the consensus layer too much, it's at risk of liquidation. And then uh, from the L1 getting liquid, the security of the L1 getting liquidated in this sense implies that all the L2s that are based on, not just based on, but inherit the the consensus layer security from Ethereum are are liquidated uh, from that as well. What does that look like? Like if if restaking goes so far, Eigenlayer says, screw it, we're open, open the floodgates, everyone restakes, we leverage up the consensus layer to the gills. What does that, what does liquidation mean for the consensus layer? Well, I think the, the, my belief is the answer is we don't really know. And that's scary, right? That, that as you introduce very high volume, very high levels of restaking, high levels of leverage, there kind of is no foundation anymore. It's, or it's the, the foundation gets unclear and you can have bugs, you can have attacks, you can have shocks to the system that it becomes very hard to predict sort of what the outcomes are going to be. And, and that may undermine overall security. It may undermine consensus. It may, you know, create all sorts of um, uh, nightmare scenario outcomes become theoretically possible, right? But that's one of the interesting things about these systems, about L1s, about L2s, about restaking is they're very hard to model in theory. They're very hard to model in test nets because it turns out that, that when you have real money involved and you have real economic, you know, you have geopolitical events and you have stock market crashes and you have, you know, uh, labor strikes and you have risk of government default on and government shutdowns, like it, it, it affects these complex economic systems in ways that are, are not easy to model and not easy to predict in advance. Right. And of course you can have multiple of these events happening at the same time that then create all sorts of, um, uh, wedge conditions or sort of pinch conditions, right? So I think this is from the EF core devs. There's been a lot of writing about how uh, there's so much complexity that gets introduced by restaking um, that that equals a lot of risk and that that risk is not very well understood. And in general, when it comes to the base economic security, less risk is better, right? Um, again, from the perspective of the network, that makes a ton of sense, but if you're a ETH holder and you can make 2% yield, 4% yield, 8% yield, or 12% yield, which one do you want, right? Or do you want someone in the middle saying, you know what, you can only make 2%. Like, well, what do you mean? I thought this was open and permissionless. I thought I could do whatever I want. So there's no um, magic bullet answers here. There's no clean way to do it. I think the thing that most of the folks I know who are involved in is they just want to be really explicit about at 2%, you're assuming one level of risk. At 12%, you're assuming six times the level of risk, right? And, and that may be, you know, there may be much more severe consequences for that. Um, and I think the concern is if all of the stake rushes to 12%, assume 6x the risk, 
then there could be some real challenges for the, you know, the base economic layer and therefore the security of the L2s. What will really probably happen in these circumstances would be less of a catastrophic economic event and more of a real shaking of confidence where people sort of go, oh, I thought this Web3 stuff was ready for prime time, but maybe it's not. I'll just sit on the sidelines. And so I think that that a lot of what we're trying to do in the Ethereum ecosystem is demonstrate that um, you know, we've reached a new level of maturity, we've reached a new level of, 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 of being solid, and that institutional um, funds can start to participate in ways that are, are meaningfully interesting to them, but also don't expose them to, to unknown consequences that they're going to be unhappy about down the line. Yeah, you segmented it perfectly. Um, I was just going to say, we've got this week, we had the futures ETF pass and this conversation has been entirely about Ethereum, and I know that you're you're uh, very well entrenched in the circles of, uh, should we say, humbly influence out there in the West Coast of the states. So, what's going on in the social circles over there? What's going? What's your vibe on the institutional inflows? Um, yeah, what's the uh, what's the uh, big boy, you know, liquidity trying to do? Is it ETH? Is it Bitcoin? Is it um, you know, are, are, are these things that these guys are thinking about, are they considering staking? Is that appealing too much risk? Um, yeah, I'd love to just kind of hear as we wrap up a summary kind of of what you've been hearing and what you think has been going on behind the scenes. Um, well, so among the builder community, it's we're in the still in the heart of crypto winter. It's heads down and build. Um, you know, it's this is not a time of crazy token launches. This is not a time of massive valuation and big fundraising. So it's very sort of heads down, serious, making stuff happen, which is, of course, for folks like me, preferable to the alternative. Um, among, you know, it's, it's always hard to sort of paint too broad of a brushstroke, but um, certainly the world of crypto has been on the minds of institutional investors for a while now. And in particular, you have uh, high net worth clients who are seeing dramatic yields, right, or seeing dramatic returns. And they go to their existing providers and they say, I want access to that. And the providers say, we don't touch that. And they go, I thought you were my financial advisor. I thought you were managing my funds and you're basically limiting me um, in this class of assets, I can, you'll, you'll give me assets to raw materials. You'll give me assets to, you know, access to real estate and to equities and to bonds, but you're not going to give me access to digital assets. Well, I guess you're not my, my wealth advisor anymore. I guess you're not my, my, my financial partner. Right. And so I think many of the large financial institutions realize that for them to service the needs of their clients, they need to be conversant in the category. No question about that. Pretty much universally, they've all stood up teams. They've all uh, begun experimentation. And I think what they're seeing is encouraging, right? That there is growing regulatory clarity. There is sort of growing stability in the markets. There is a small number of players or small number of asset classes that seem relatively solid, relatively serious, relatively investable. And the smart ones are going in and getting hands-on. So um, I... I am personally aware of some very large uh, uh, players who are very actively working on staking projects, right? Whether it's themselves or through partners. And the reason is not because they want to drive a whole bunch of yield. The reason is because they really want to understand the problem very well. 
And they know that if they're going to incorporate this into their operations or they're going to advise their clients on it, they can't do it from the cheap seats. They got to say, hey, here's what we did internally and here's what we know and here's what we learned and, and here's what we recommend to you. So I, I do not anticipate massive inflows or sudden shifts, but it seems pretty clear from the BlackRock ETF filing all the way down that the, the largest financial institutions are paying attention, um, are interested, want to do relevant things and are doing the homework, right? And that I think is long-term bullish for the category. Um, it's just going to take a little while to get there. So uh, uh, we also, we didn't touch on this, but you have things like EIP 4337, um, which is, or not EIP, ERC 4337 account abstraction, which makes this stuff much easier to use. And, you know, theoretically, and I've talked about this publicly, your credit card could become a crypto wallet with its own private keys. And you can do all sorts of super cool stuff about airdropping NFTs into Visa cards that are on file at Spotify based on your listening habits, right? So like suddenly things get super Don't cool. tease me. Yeah. I wrote a long form post about Intense today and it was oh. just like, I this off-chain on-chain combination of intense is just like boom. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot happening. And again, I think this is probably the best thing is building, making things easier, making things, you know, uh, more uh, attractive to get involved in. And um just taking this all seriously, not being, you know, crazy pump and dump or or you know, crazy speculative. I think that's long-term healthy for the ecosystem. And that's why we're still here. That's why we've been building for five years. That's why we plan to be building for the next five years. One moon. <laughs> Any minute now. Any minute now. Dude, thanks, Matt. Thank you so much, man. It's such a such a fun time to just sit back and relax for almost an hour and just get schooled. So thank you, sir. You bet. My pleasure. And, and again, thanks for having me on. And uh, looking forward to seeing everybody out there. Check out Block Native. Check me out on Twitter or X, I guess it's called now. Um, and uh, let's let's keep building, everybody. Biddle, build. Thanks, Matt. This was tons of fun. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the DeFi by Design podcast. And a big thank you to all of our sponsors for their support. Please check them out in the links below, as well as on our website and in our newsletter. We'll be back with more exciting guests and insights. Until then, stay curious, stay informed, and keep designing the future of DeFi.